HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. This week on Meet and 3, meet four of our HRN Hall of Fame inductees. These prolific individuals are writers who have changed the way we talk about food. We'll take a look at the journeys that shaped their literary voices. I was heading off into the unknown to spend my junior year of college in Paris. We'll explore the culinary landscape they work within. You know, it was that whole self-made American idea that you, you can just kind of create a new world from scratch, including a new way of eating. And look at the transformative effect that their work has on what we eat and where it comes from. It gets down to management deciding that humane handling is important. You've got to have management that cares. And if management doesn't care, then you're going to have a bunch of bad stuff. You can learn more about HRN's 10th Anniversary Hall of Fame at heritageradionetwork.org slash hall of fame. And don't forget to subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. What makes good food good? Is it contingent on nutritional, economic, political, or moral conditions? Or is it simply food that tastes good? I'm joined today by two students of the SOAS University of London doctorate program, Francesca Vaghi and Brandy Miller. Welcome to the show, you two. Hi. Hi, thank you. So first off, can um, both of you share your research focuses? Um, First, you, Francesca. Okay, yes. Uh, Thank you very much for having us, Coral. Uh, So I'm an anthropologist. Uh, As you say, I'm based at SOAS and uh, the Thomas Coram Research Unit, uh, which is part of UCL. And my research is on children's eating practices in the early years. So basically, I spent a year at a nursery here in London, and uh, there were two components to my research. So the first was kind of exploring on a micro level what were children's uh, social interactions with each other during mealtimes with each other and with adults. And I looked at the way in which uh, children, even from a very young age, create their self and peer identities through food and eating. And then uh, paired to that, I also looked more broadly at how different policy domains intersect uh, at this level. So I looked at um, how children's food policy and family intervention policy more, more specifically linked to each other, but also public health and education and 
what role does does food play in all of that? Mm-hmm. So how do you find that kids come to understand what good food is? Um, well, obviously, they they don't talk necessarily about good food. Um, what I've argued in my thesis uh, is that for children, it doesn't matter so much what they eat. Uh, it's more about how they eat. Mm-hmm. So for them, uh, mealtimes uh, were pleasurable if they were mostly a social time and a time at which they uh, they could uh, kind of reinforce um, their social unity. Uh, and there were many ways as well in which they resisted adult attempts to um, control their behavior at mealtime. So that was one of the ways in which they created this group group unity. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, what I've understood uh, by by talking to children and and doing child-led research is that uh, that's what matters to them. It matters that it's a sociable time, one in which they have a bit more control over over their behavior and and, uh, practices as opposed to most other domains. And uh, of course, I also found that food to them, uh, both in in kind of games and as well as in, let's let's call it real, (laughs) real food exchanges, Uh, it had to be kind of a caring uh, interaction as well. So they in many ways communicated that that food that was uh, pleasurable to them was the kind of food that also they associated with care. Now about you, Brandy? Oh, yes. I'm I'm a fourth year PhD student in the history department at SOAS. and I'm in the editing phase of my thesis, and I'm a social historian. So more specifically, I'm a food historian of pre- and post-colonial Gold Coast, or as it's known now, Ghana, uh, in West Africa. And the title of my thesis is The Social History of Food and Cooking in the Gold Coast in the 19th and 20th Centuries. And uh, I chose to do this because I find that oftentimes the history of places like the Gold Coast or Ghana focuses on uh, political actors and and uh, you know leaders, colonial governments. And it's harder to find out how ordinary people exercise agency in the rapidly changing circumstances of the Atlantic mm-hmm. world. So, uh, in looking at the change over time and what was cooked and what was eaten, and it's very interdisciplinary. I'm using linguistics. I've done surveys, anthropological, archaeological, government documents, oral histories travel diaries, missionary accounts, all kinds of things, it reveals a different perspective of the political and economic history of this location mm-hmm. and then the agency of these actors in that unfolding history of the last 200-plus years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so perhaps, Rene, you can start us off. Um, how would you define good food, or perhaps it might be easier to say what good food is not? Oh, dear. <laughs> okay. Um, well, you know, that's... Well, not surprisingly, what good food is has uh, changed over time in my particular field and in my particular corner of the world that I study. Um, How would I define that? I think I would say that, for me, good food is tied up with political and economic power. Um, And the way this plays out in... uh, in Ghana is that, for example, uh, Ghana's got many of the same conditions for the development of a national cuisine as, let's say, India or France or whatever. But uh, due to structural issues, um, their dependence on export of cocoa and palm oil and with 
different economic rivalries and of different regional language groups, they've, they've never had a national cuisine. Talking about food for them is a really divisive issue. So for me, um, doing this thesis has complicated my ideas about what good food is and, and food and power and their relationships and how that's experienced differently in Ghana versus, let's say, the United States, which is where I'm from. Mm-hmm. So it would have to be something that um, supports unity, um, supports the health of your citizens, and is, is also accessible. Mm-hmm. And how about you, Francesca? Yeah, I, I can only echo some of what Brandy just said. Um, I think uh, context is very important. Uh, so I think when talking about good food, we need to be very aware that that might mean very, very different things to very different people at different times. Um, so for me, um, well, first, I think, as I as I already said before, what I found in my own research, and I think this, this can uh, not only be applicable to the children that I worked with, but also to many of the parents, um, was that it has to be something something that is um, that has social value. I mean, food is not only something that's meant to provide nutrition, but it's also meant to provide uh, this sense of unity. Um, and uh, as Brandy said, however, it's also important to to remain realistic and, and realize that this also means that it, it needs to provide health and it needs to provide substance, uh, substance and dignity. Um, so that's kind of my my professional take of what good food meant in, in the context of my own research. And um, I, I, from a personal perspective, um, I, I think it's it's also about um, identity. Um, so good food to me is any food that is not detached from its social value and that brings pleasure, that has emotional significance. And that is also linked to our past and our history and even our personal memory. So I think it can mean many, many things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even to that point, um, I think we so often equate good food with quote unquote real food, which is food that's unprocessed, um, food that is grown from our own hands, from the soil. Um, and so how, how can you speak to that? Do you think that's totally true, that good food should only be real food? Um, or do you think there's some value to processed foods as well? Um, well, yeah. I think, uh, again, that, that is very contextual. Uh, again, as an anthropologist, I think it really depends on on what significance the people that you're talking with give to, that, to, to that, do, those two categories of food. Um, yes, for some people, good food might mean food that is fresh, that is natural, as you say, and picked from the earth. And for others, it can be also the the more processed kind, the the, the high street fast food kind of kind of um, uh, things that you can find. Um, so it it depends. Uh, I don't know what Brandy will say about this. Well, I've, I've got a couple of different perspectives. Uh, one as as a, a mother, a, a working single mother in the United States, mm-hmm. I had to make some compromises. So. That means, you know, you're going to get uh, some, some more processed things than I might have liked. Mm-hmm. But then um, I think in, for my research, we've, we've had this issue in Ghana, actually. The, the Gates Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation are funding um, GMO foods. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a problem because... Actually, Ghana doesn't have a hunger issue, and 
and they feel like this is causing them to potentially it's going to ruin their local production of food because mm-hmm. the food production in Ghana is extremely localized. It's, it's held by smallholders. Even with the cocoa export that they do, that's all smallholders. There's no plantation or agriculture there. And so they're, they're feeling, for them, this good food for them is being able to, to produce it by themselves, like you said, real food, food that's not adulterated and that they have control over. Because if you get in a situation where you have GMO foods, and then that comes with the government having to subsidize fertilizer, which they don't need in Ghana at the time, this could really compromise their national security. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a little bit more complicated for them, having you know, GMO foods or any processed food actually literally could compromise their national security. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if there is no issue with... Um, food resources, why? What was the impetus for the subsidy? You know, as a matter of fact, there's a couple of organizations in Ghana who are also scratching their heads. There's one that's called the Ghana Association for Food Producers, Mm -hmm. and um, the other one is called Food Sovereignty Ghana. And one of the people that worked for the the Ghana Association of Food Producers, uh, she was quoted as saying, Bill Gates was saying that GMO foods are the answer to African hunger. And they're saying, how do you know that's the answer to our hunger? Mm -hmm. And even who said we're hungry? We're not even starving. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, they're not hungry. There's this misplaced perception that everybody in Africa is starving. And that's just simply not true. And so it's it's either misplaced morality, uh, you know, misplaced moral impetus, and or perhaps it's, it's, it's a plan to get uh, people dependent upon uh, corporate, you know, Monsanto seeds and fertilizer, mm-hmm. or maybe it's both. I, I don't know, but the people there in Ghana are—they don't know the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like um, given, I think we can find it easy to see what's wrong with processed food and the artificiality of it um, and just how much superior organic or whatever fresh and natural food is but there is you know a huge degree of elitism and exclusivity that comes with this kind of language and so can you guys talk about the elitism of discounting processed foods and maybe yeah let's start there um, well, I think uh, I'm going to talk specifically about my research because I don't I don't want to go into areas that are beyond my my remit. Um, I think uh, I think what I, I I suspect what you want uh, to get at with this conversation is that um, often organic, fresh, uh, local, seasonal food tends to be quite expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, good food equals good personhood in many cases, um, and processed foods are not considered good food so hence uh, those that can afford good food are the good people and those that can't aren't um, this is kind of a very basic uh, retelling of, of how I perceive things to be um, so in that sense yes of course processed foods or discounting them can be seen as a form of elitism because it's often the less wealthy uh, who can afford those foods or who rely predominantly on those foods um, and yeah only only a very small segment of the population sadly increasingly can only can, can afford the quote-unquote good food the organic the seasonal the fresh um, so for me that's kind of where the elitism of process, discounting processed foods comes from is there a way to combat that do you think 
Um, well, I think it has to be a policy solution. Uh, I think food availability needs to become uh, wide, more wide and um, yeah, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, it, I talk a lot about uh, the contradictions of promoting uh, certain ideas of what good food is, so fresh food and in some cases organic as well, but not accounting for the fact that these items are often very expensive. Um, so I think it has to be policy-driven solutions. Um, I think most people already know what, quote-unquote, healthy food from a nutritional perspective is so i don't think it's a it's a lack of knowledge that's preventing people to accessing adequate and sufficient food it's it's more of a of a accessibility and affordability issue and i i believe it can it can pro probably just be solved by a better policy making mm -hmm. yeah i also think it's kind of an issue with education i feel like um, especially now there's a lot a, of bad talk um, on processed foods and i feel like for the future of food to be realistic and also healthy i think it needs to be kind of this yoking of process industrialized food with the organic seasonal movement that's happening now and so brandy could you talk a bit about what this future might look like or what it might demand oh well i again i'm, I'm going to say what fran said which is i can really only speak to uh, my research mm -hmm. um but but again the the food that most people eat in ghana is organic it's it's uh they don't use they don't even need fertilizer so they don't have a a problem with that, but they do have a problem with some processed foods, especially with the rapid urbanization mm -hmm. that a lot of countries in West Africa are undergoing. Um, some of the, the biggest problems they have is, is with imported seasoning cubes from Maggie or Nestle. Mm -hmm. And um, there has been some commentary as early as the late 1960s about people saying that these, these seasonings, these foreign imported seasonings are unhealthy. They cause people to um, have allergies, and so there's an awareness of that. Um, but uh, and also a lot of things that kids eat. This is it's funny. This is how kind of uh, Fran and I our work overlaps. Kids have a lot of control over what they eat in Ghana, hmm. and a lot of the things that they like, like to eat, depending on how much money their families have, if their family can afford to pay for them to have lunch at school, then they'll eat really well. They'll eat local unprocessed seasonal food. But if they don't have a lot of money and they just have a couple of, of pennies, then they'll eat imported foods like um, uh, cookies or biscuits, and that'll be their lunch. Mm -hmm. And I think, though, that the Ghanaian government is very well aware of this because they've been doing studies about the nutrition of their students since the 50s. But the, the problem is that when you're in an urban situation and you're in an economy that's completely dependent upon the export of cocoa and parents have to do a lot of side hustle, they, they've been in a gig economy forever, kids are left to their own devices. Mm -hmm. And uh, these Nestle will come in and they'll sponsor. We've seen the same thing in the U.S. schools, actually. Mm -hmm. they'll, they'll do adver advertisements in the school or they'll pay for the food. You know, they'll subsidize some kind of team or something like that. And that's how they get the kids hooked on their processed foods. Mm 
Mm -hmm. If Um, I I may interject, it's the same here in the UK. And that was one of the concerns that many parents shared with me, actually, that the the language of good food, quote unquote, gets co-opted by by brands. Right. So I remember very clearly during a focus group discussion when one of the mothers was lamenting that, you know, you buy these snacks for kids that say organic and one of your five a day. But then you look closely at the ingredients or the sugar content. And she said, you know, it's like giving them a packet of candy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also something that really needs to be assessed from a policy perspective, possibly, mm-hmm. because, um, yeah, I think I think food corporations are very cleverly co-opting the language of good slash healthy food to mm-hmm. make profit and not really providing uh, healthy food. Yeah, I would build, build on that even more. I feel like another popular word is um, artisanal. And I think there's this conflation of good food with kind of traditional or old world <laughs> techniques, whatever that means. And so can either of you speak to that, um, if any of the, if there's any truth to that conflation or if it's just also um, smart copy? Hmm. I, I don't, you know, we're not using artisanal in Ghana. There hasn't really been... Um, I think the word for them would be more local mm-hmm. because Ghana has lots of different microclimates. Um, they actually have very many different regional foods. So I think for them the food would be regional or local versus imported rice, uh, imported cookies or biscuits. And, and there's, there's, there's a great many concerns about health. Um, high blood pressure is starting to be an issue. Um, because of the imported food. Mm-hmm. But I'm sorry, I'm going to have to backtrack because I forgot what your question was. Sure, sure. I, I just think like um, so often we romanticize this idea of old world techniques like um, building a wood oven to bake bread or mm-hmm. you know, using natural sourdough instead of active dry yeast or something. And do you think there is some basis or there is some, some kind of deeper truth to returning to these techniques or can we find um, some kind of resolution in our future or in our, even in our present? I don't, I don't think so, not in Ghana. I mean, I, I know there's, like I said, there's concern about some of the seasonings and some of the imported items, but um, people are, people are, are uh, still actually making food as, as close to local as possible, with the, the most important exception of the cities, where, for example, now in Accra, one of the most popular things you can eat is fried rice. Mm. Fried rice is huge. It's big business. It's, people tend to work more in in um, offices and you know they don't have time to make the food like they used to so yes I think that's starting to become a problem in Ghana but I don't think it's as much as a problem as uh, as maybe in the US or the UK Fran what do you think well I think this question about traditional techniques and um, artisanal food really relates a bit again to that question about elitism because sure yes of course if you make uh, everything from scratch using you know only the best ingredients etc it's going to be a better quality of, of food but uh, let's ask ourselves first of all again who has the money to buy such ingredients which tend to be expensive who has the time to cook uh, food like that because uh, you know, a single mother working three part-time jobs is not going to get home in the evening and bake uh, sourdough bread for her kids, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though she might want to. But, you know, realistically, that's not going to happen. So this is a conversation that I think affects a very, again, a very small proportion of the population. Those who can afford to have that kind of food experience are fewer and fewer, I would say. Uh, but, yeah, of course, I think, you know, the less the less... 
um, things and uh, additives you put in food, the better, the more you can cook from scratch. For some people, the better. Again, depends a lot on context. Mm-hmm. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Damon Bolte. And I'm Souther Teague. Together we host The Speakeasy, a show where we discuss cocktails, spirits, wine, beer, tea, coffee, and all things in the liquid universe. Yeah, our guests range from bartenders and brewers, alchemists and ambassadors, roasters and regulars, hippies and home brewers, and every expert enthusiast in between. <laughs> Browse episodes of The Speakeasy wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. This is meant to be eaten. We were just talking about um, how organic is usually best, but most often than not um, entirely unrealistic and inaccessible and kind of how to navigate good versus real food. Um, and so we were kind of ragging on those, um, the Maggie and Nestle seasoning cubes brandy. Um, yeah. But I would even argue that there is some kind of social, cultural, maybe even aesthetic import to products like that. Um, can you talk a bit about the less health-based concerns and maybe more of the other ways that these foods can play very important roles in our lives? Yeah, I think, I think in Ghana, um, what's most important is uh, a feeling of, of cosmopolitanism. Mm-hmm. Ghana has is, is, is been at the center of the Atlantic world trade um, and you'll see, like for example, if you just look at the change over time, uh, there's always been a value uh, to imported foods. Uh, they signal status, prestige, connectedness with the rest of the world economy. Uh, in the 19-teens, you'll see criticism in the historical record of the growing local demand for imported tinned meats, you know, uh, wheat flour and rice. And some of the, the colonial administrators would say, oh, that's a moral failing on part of the local people as they would rather order tinned meat then go down to the market and purchase it. Hmm. But I think for for Ghanaians, especially those who were traders at that time, that was a that was a status symbol. Um, you could even talk about the time when the uh, they were doing the changeover from slavery in eighteen oh seven to the legitimate trade and the use of food and diplomacy is a show of power and a lot of this food was imported from the Netherlands, from Spain. Uh, you see accounts of English officers visiting uh, the, the Ashanti in Kumasi and, and being so impressed with all the silver plate and all the, the symbols of status. So, so to a degree, and I know there's been cooking shows also in Ghana that feature Nestle foods and Maggie foods. 
to a degree, it's a symbol of cosmopolitanism and status. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and Francesca, how about you in your talking and working with children? Have you found that there are certain products that maybe elicit a more emotional or, I don't know, some, a, a simpler response than, um, yeah, let's start there. A simpler response than what, sorry? Yeah, so I, I think I want to get at um, less of the mom's aversion to the copy or the branding yeah, and more to, yeah, like yeah. the... Mm-hmm. So, so moving away from the health uh, side exactly. of things. Exactly. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, I think, um, well, for the children, uh, I think what was very interesting to see, I mean, in general, uh, as, a, as a childhood scholar, I, I just take it for granted that everyone thinks that children have agency and that they're very capable of making choices and that they understand their social context rather well, even mm-hmm. from a young age. So one of the things that I found really interesting and surprisingly um, that not many people think about, although I think food marketers do think about this, is that children recognize brands very well, even when little. Um, so things like uh, we have a juice here called Ribena, um, that was very popular among children and it was a source of constant stress for moms because yes it has a lot of sugar but then one thing that I that I do argue in my thesis is that um, caring through food requires some quote-unquote nutritional transgressions mm. so yes of course you know a mom wants to make her or a dad <laughs> um, would, would want to make their child happy and get them the juice they like or the chocolate um, you know, you want to please your child, you want to make your child happy. Um, so there were all sorts of, of foods which were quote-unquote bad, but were in fact good from an emotional uh, point of view. And uh, I mean, there were certainly so many occasions in, in the school where I did my research where there was a celebration happening, certainly the mainstream holidays like Halloween or Easter, which have a lot of candy in them, um, you know, uh, that was that was not an issue at all to have candy on those days. So, I think that's also part of the the contradictions that I that I like to to discuss because, you know, f- good food can also mean bad food. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> if that makes yeah. Sense. Yeah. Um. I was even going to say if it's not even so simple as equating good food with something that's nutritious. I mean, if it were the case, and we'd all kind of be drinking soylent or you know some equivalent. Um. What other ways do food feed us or keep us satiated? Hmm. Um, well, go ahead, friend. No, no, go for it. No, I was just going to say that um, there's a lot of talk about, and, and Fran had mentioned this earlier, about identity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I was trying to recall uh, something written by... Uh, uh, Katerina Graf and um, a couple of the other people who contributed to our Gastronomica article. Mm. So, so there are many meanings attached to food, identity, power, symbolism, and faith. Uh, Claudia Prieto Piastro's uh, brief about can the food of our enemies become good food is an exploration of, of this tent of the tensions between uh, food and, and power and, and your identity and, and uh, who can own a food. Uh, and I think that that's a big dialogue in Europe in general. Um, you'll see a lot of, like you were saying earlier about artisanal, a lot of people want to brand their food as artisanal because that gives them the ability to, uh, to own uh, 
a horse, a piece of of local identity, and to command um, some market share. Mm-hmm. But also, it can literally be tied up with with faith. Um, and for example, uh, Katrina Graf wrote about the price of homemade bread um, and how the Moroccan government subsidizes uh, flour. And a lot of that has to do, people will still continue to eat foods that are not economically viable, and that's not economically viable in Morocco. But their belief uh, and their attachment to um, good bread being good food and as part of their local identity, uh, it's very strong, strong enough that the Moroccan government would um, subsidize that to import this Mm -hmm. foreign uh, flour. Uh, Fran, what were you going to say about that? Um, no, I think you, I'm glad that you brought in the, the research of our colleagues into the discussion because I think you, yeah, you bring up uh, yeah, m- most of the things that one can say in response to that question. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know yeah, so if I have anything to add. We've been talking about how food can construct um, identity, but in what ways can food also be political and how can food be politically good or politically bad? Well, I think the example that uh, Brandy just gave from our colleague uh, Katarina Graf is a very good one um, because um, if you've read the the brief, which I think you have, Coral, Mm -hmm. uh, you'll notice that um, this is a matter of of also food security, food safety. If uh, if the the subsidies are not uh, not, are not uh, if 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 flour is not subsidized, then it might mean that people cannot make bread and cannot sustain themselves. Um, and so that is inherently political. Uh, the people who decide who gets to eat what—that's that's political. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another brief um, in the collection uh, by another colleague called Marush Tak, and she kind of explores uh, that question from a more macroeconomic perspective. So she talks about um, yeah different different um, uh, countries, uh, emerging economies where. Uh, you know, she asked the question, what happens when uh, the people that get to decide which food becomes available is no longer the state, but um, big, big corporations. So mm. I think that that is inherently political. And the same applies to, to my comments from earlier about uh, the contradiction of, of uh, promoting certain health, public health campaigns uh, uh, when there is there is a, a huge gap in what people can actually afford to eat, mm-hmm. and and that doesn't get properly addressed, and I think that's also political. So uh, it's all interlinked. It's all it's all very uh, very very connected, and it's hard to separate one thing from the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say that's not really even a what if statement. I feel like that is already happening. I feel like larger corporations are um, <laughs> have been dictating what we eat and what we want to eat um, before we even or be, yeah before we even know it. Yeah. Um, Brandy, how about you? Any, any comments on the, the previous? Well, this is, this is not a new problem. Mm-hmm. This is a historical mm. problem. I mean, this, right? This is not new. People have been traveling around the globe to get something different to eat forever and then controlling access to it. And, uh, and, but as far as Ghana is concerned, uh, I could say it's political because, for example, they, uh, I could make an argument, and I have, that Ghana was born out of a food fight. Hmm. So a lot, of the, a lot of the foods that were being imported, such as the tin meat and the rice and uh, the sugar by this time in the, in the late 1940s, 
people had come to think of as, as staples. And so uh, one of the African trading companies had found a way to squeeze out local merchants from this trade. And when the war, Second World War happened, they kept the prices high. And, and that resulted in riots. Uh, people were having riots. And that was a way for someone like Kwame Nkrumah, uh, the first president of Ghana, to come in, to swoop in and make a case for independence. And so, no, food is very political. And then, again, the fact that Ghana doesn't have a national cuisine is because there are so many local, regional language dialects that are tied to food um, that this is and, – and add to that the fact that they're still struggling to import these things that people have come to think of as staples. And it becomes very political. So Kwame Nkrumah, in his wisdom, decided to not even talk about food. We're going to focus on the, the soccer, the football team. You know, we're going to talk about the flag. Let's look at the money. But the, the one thing he wouldn't touch is, is any kind of discussion about food. So, no, food is, is foundational to, to power and, and empire and statehood. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, food is political. Yeah, and to that, um, how also are moral and ethical values placed upon food in our choices to consume certain foods and others um, and not others. Francesca, do you notice this when you're working with the f- um, with mothers and even with the children? Of course. Um, as I said, I think, um, you know, the children that I worked with were, were quite small. So, um, you know, one has to be careful about how we interpret what what uh, what children's viewpoints are. And, and I think you need to be aware of their competencies. Um, and of course, uh, with parents, the discussion is very different. Um, as I said earlier, good food equates to good personhood, and I think it's no uh, secret that uh, what what parents feed their children is immediately perceived as a reflection of their parenting practices. Mm-hmm. And uh, and people are very much aware of this. And it's uh, in in the UK, as I'm sure it is in the US. In the UK, what what mothers specifically usually? I mean, the term parents get used gets used a lot, but uh, essentially, it's it's usually an emphasis on mothers. Um, it's constantly under scrutiny. Uh, a few years ago. Um, there was a huge scandal with uh, what children were being fed in schools and a celebrity chef uh, called Jamie Oliver had a very big campaign on this and there was a, there was a, a scandal for a few weeks on these mothers who were slipping junk food to their children <laughs> through the school, school gates and this caused great outrage. Um, but yeah, I don't think... Again, I think every parent has the best intention of their child at mind. So I think we we fail to to question these these moralizations that we have on food um, and why do we have them and what is behind the the practices that each parent develops within their house. Um, and then again, uh, whose whose practices get scrutinized uh, is also interesting to look at because. Um, you know, in, in the discussions that I have had here about parents and parenting, it's always very interesting to me that in policy discourse, particularly the the practices that get frequently questioned are those of mainly working class and ethnic minority parents. And in my opinion, uh, you know, many, many of the wealthier um, parents in this country send their children to boarding school. Nobody really 
thinks of that as bad parenting practice, but um, you know, mm-hmm. who 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 looks at whose practices needs to be questioned a bit more, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of food, yes, of course, of course, there's a huge moral weight to what parents feed their children, and it's it's always under the microscope. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brandy, do you find oh. that you've kind of seen similar? questions of morality or ethics in studying Ghana food systems? I have. Um, yes, it's, uh, I could come at this a couple of different ways, but maybe I'll just talk about how Western foods are, are status foods, sure, but the, technically they're, they're considered snack foods. I have known students at the University of Ghana Lego, and they'd say, yeah, we might go out with our friends and eat an entire pizza but you haven't really eaten proper food <laughs> until you have eaten local food produced, you know, at home that connects you to your family and your language group and to your, your fundamental strength <laughs> and vitality. So people are, there is a discussion about, yeah, be careful about that foreign food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sap your strength if you're not careful. So in that aspect, yeah, there's, there's some... There's some uh, fundamental ideas about um, food and morality, but a little, and also a little bit connected to what Fran is talking about. In in the night from the 1930s, when it was still a colony, to the present day, there are have been government programs that focus on that target women and girls, and with an eye to teach them proper cooking practices. Uh, because they're concerned about the health of children. But but in Ghana, the, the case is a little different because, again, kids have a lot more freedom to choose what they want to eat. And so a lot of this money that is spent on targeting women and girls is, is kind of wasted. Mm-hmm. And I think people make that mistake a lot, especially nowadays and especially in urban environments that, you know, yeah, you know, it's, it's the parents' fault. Uh, if the kids are eating poorly, and to a degree it is, but then also doesn't really take into account being in an urban setting and having access to so many different choices. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I don't really know uh, uh, how to, how they're going to resolve that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're not yet at a clear answer as to what good food is, but I feel like we've gotten slightly closer. <laughs> Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you Thank very you much, Carl. Us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fair, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.